things outdoors. And welcome to episode 124 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Chase here, sitting, hanging out with Tristan, virtually. And uh, on episode 124 here, we got Sean Simmons coming up from Angler's Atlas and uh, the MyCatch app to chat all about fishing apps today, which is pretty cool. But right now, Tristan, how's it going, man? It's it's. I feel like it's been a while since we've uh, since we've connected. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's, I, I thought spring was going to be a little slower, but unfortunately, I don't know if just the snow pushed everything back, but it's been a mad rush here to get all the, all the plants in the ground and the gardens worked and, and all the equipment kind of tuned up. So it's been, it's been busy, man. How's, how's the garden work coming? Where, where are you guys at? Well, we still got a clay in the garden, so there's that. I don't know if we'll ever get rid of that, but, uh. Yeah, the the raised beds are planted. We've got uh, we've got peppers in those, and the tomatoes in, and then for the most part, the, the gardens on the ground are are filled up too. Nice, nice. That's good to hear. Had a a bit of a late frost here, early June, not so long ago. So it's it's kind of uh, been like the, I mean, uh, just the final au revoir from from winter. I feel like. Yeah, if you're not from Manitoba, it's been a pretty wild spring overall. Lots of water, lots of precipitation, cold temperatures. It's kind of made it challenging to to do the regular spring stuff. Yeah, but I've seen uh, water water levels are starting to come down a little bit now. Uh, I know I drive over the floodway bridge quite a bit, and I bet you the floodway has dropped at least 10 or 15 feet, which is good to see. And uh, some of the parks are opening back up, which is also good to see. You know, um, I know a lot of people re- rely on this time to head out camping and fishing and stuff and enjoy what Manitoba has to offer. And a lot of that stuff, especially in the south here, has been closed down. And now it's opening back up, though. So good news there. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. It's pretty wild, like cabin owners losing their docks and some of them losing their cabins, right? It's pretty, it's a wet spring for sure. Yeah, totally. What have you been up to there? I saw you were out mushroom hunting there and got, got into some morels. Oh man, I you know what I'm I'm part of a couple mushroom groups on Facebook like the you know the mycology groups, and there's a couple really great ones where uh, there's a lot of good support in the group and um, you know uh, just a lot of information in there that you can you can't you're not afraid to ask you know if you don't know something you know some right. of the other Facebook groups. You get eaten up pretty hard sometimes if you ask a stupid question, but oh, yeah. <laughs> there you can pretty much toss anything up and, and uh, there'll be somebody willing to help you. So it's pretty cool. And uh, I've been watching everybody hauling these these enormous just bounties of, of uh, morels this spring, and I've never found one before. So um, I finally did a bit of searching on iHunter in an area that I know is kind of like sandy soil, which, which I think they kind of like. And... Uh, picked out a few areas to go check out and uh yeah i just went out one morning and started to do some some looking around and 
finally found one, man. I almost stepped on my first one, and then <laughs> I I didn't hit the jackpot, which is fine. You know, it's not always jackpot when you go out. But uh, I did find a hat load, which is about probably like 30, 30 morels. And uh, I found, I bet you about 15 in the first like 20 feet once I started finding them. And then I kind of, you know, picked them. And then, uh, and then I just started looking through the bush and it was like one or two or three in a, in a sparse, sparse group in the hazel brush. So it was kind of thick going, almost reminded me of elk hunting. Yeah, bushwhacking <laughs> but uh i i ended up with uh yeah a pretty good number and and uh i selfishly cooked them all up <laughs> twice i i did some in an omelet and then i uh cooked some up in uh with a hunk of backstrap oh and, nice and they are like the most punchy mushroom flavor flavored mushrooms i've ever had it's it's pretty nice. incredible what they taste like and it's it's uh yeah it's it's something else man super cool really good glad i finally found some for starters yeah i was gonna say did you get jacked up when you found your first one i did i was like holy smokes here we go and yeah. a lot of people were finding like the false morels this spring um which are verpas the short name for them and uh as soon they're they're still edible, but some people do have some like stomach problems with them. But right. uh, as soon as I seen this one, my first, the first one I found, I was like, "That's a morale. I'm pumped. Here we go. We're into them finally." Nice. And I feel like a lot of things in my life, whether I'm mushroom hunting, fishing, or just hunting in general, is always like the get the monkey off the back, and then you know you're good to go, kind of thing. So the monkey's off the back. For yeah, that. that's. That's kind of how it goes, right? Yeah. And then uh, I got the spot dialed in for next year, too. Dropped a pin in the old eye hunter there, marked the mushroom spot. And uh, yeah, I did a bunch of scouting on eye hunters, how I kind of found that spot. I, I What I did was, like like I said, I knew that area that I wanted to go to. And then I just looked for that, that kind of mixed boreal with like heavy poplar and uh, just started hitting spots using eye hunter, going to spots. And, what's that? It paid off. Yeah, totally paid off, man. I was pumped awesome. about that. Man, I was I was heading north and coming back south too, but just just north of Grand Rapids, where there's a there's a burn in Manitoba. So if we're if you're heading north through Manitoba at one point, we well you're encountering quite a large burn. And I was looking at all the new stuff coming up. I was like, man, I bet you there's some mushrooms in there. But I was I was driving all the way north north. So like we just couldn't find time to to head out, but I was like, I bet you there's something in there. Yeah, yeah. I know a few guys that were in some burns this year, and it just like paid off like super mushrooms in there. It's wild. I'll so. send you a pen over the old eye hunter. To yeah, my secret spot there. <laughs> Maybe next year we'll have to make it up that way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, other than that, did some mushroom hunting, and then this weekend. Um, I'm going to a MWF event. I'm doing some instructing there and, and, uh, helping out at, uh, becoming an outdoors woman. So it was kind of like a exclusive event for, for women to come and try out different, uh, different aspects or different activities in the outdoor world. So I'm going to be hosting the fly fishing seminars, which I mean, yeah, I'm not expert by any means, but I, I feel like I'd be able to 
to teach a few folks and get them laughing and have some fun. So, yeah. Are you going to, are you going to show them how to launch a, a bead head through a window or what's the, <laughs> that's, that's the trick <laughs> shot. We'll have to <laughs> play a game of horse with Tyler one day and see how much damage we can do. <laughs> yeah. And that's deadly. Eh? I didn't realize how fast those, those bead head flies move and how much damage they can do until I pretty much snapped my rod right in half with one of them. Like the tip oh, of the rod yeah. came clean off. I was like, Hey, there's something wrong with my rod. They're like, well, you ran a fly into it and yeah, those things are moving pretty quick. So oh, yeah, man, I took one to the face the other day. Uh, I, was, I headed out um, with Dylan there to do some fishing in the small fish. And we were, we had planned on like targeting some carp. Initial plan was to go pike fishing, but the boat launch that we wanted to go pike fishing at was shut down. And, uh, so we scrapped that plan and then we're going to look for some carp and some sloughs and it, it got super windy. But, um, anyways, he hooked up like, uh, two flies in a row and he gave me his rod to toss around for a little bit. And I was kind of tossing with, uh, the wind blown at me so off my right hand side and i just i was just launching it and smacked me right in the back like right on the back of the jaw oh. and it, it hurt like crazy man and i i was like that hook is in my face for sure <laughs> was I, it no i felt around a couple <laughs> times like whoo whoo missed that one because it was very close to my ear too so it could have oh. gone through there but luckily luckily the only uh, issue was just a bit of pain from getting smacked in the face. Yeah. I haven't talked to you about your fishing trip there with Dylan. You're you in the swellfish. What, can you describe that boat to, to folks who might not know what a swellfish is, first of all? Yeah. So the swellfish is like a is like a Zodiac style boat, I guess you would compare it to. And uh, we got a 20 horse tattoo on the back of that thing. Still getting broken in. And uh, fully collapsible boat, like maneuverable comes in two separate carry bags and uh floor section is separate so we put all together your place there and, and got it rocking and rolling and put on your your trailer and uh me and dylan pretty much carried that thing down to the beach a couple different loads to load it up and all that and we got it rolling in the water of big windy lake winnipeg and it was incredibly stable as a 14 foot boat and I guess one thing that those that style boat is known for just is stability, and it's it's amazing, man. It's it's so good. Um, the other thing about it is we got like the anglers package with it too, so we got a bunch of like those Scotty rod holders on it, uh, transducer mount. It's got a anchor hold on it, and it's got enough ropes and tie downs in the boat and like accessories in there that man, you could put anything you want in there pretty much. So, uh, we spent a couple hours on it in the water, trolling a couple, like putting around a few bays and, and like trying to, trying to find something, but we couldn't really dial anything in on that fish wise, but we did, uh, take it into some pretty big waves and did a little putting around in it. And it was, it was awesome, man. It was so stable, especially like a small boat like that. You don't expect it to be that stable, especially on the big water. You know, if you're in a tinner that size, fly fish should It'd be a different story. I think it'd be pretty, uh, well, you know how they get. Yeah. Right? I was thinking of you like, cause the, the wind was up and this is the first time you guys are taking the boat out 
and we had that new motor on so you weren't supposed to rev it too high so i was like i don't know what the fishing's gonna look like but i hope yeah. you're safe <laughs> yeah we got actually pretty lucky because just the way the wind was coming across we were kind of tucked in behind this this point and we were pretty safe there but on the other side of that point man it was like eight foot rollers white caps rolling into shore you know what i mean yeah it was, it was gnarly so yeah lake winnipeg can get real real rough here in manitoba um we, i hope you're wearing a life jacket too because I, I don't know if you heard about that guy and his uh son there who on the winnipeg river there got caught up in the his anchor almost the whole boat went under it happened real quick too eh? it just goes to show you so if you haven't heard uh someone trying to fish the winnipeg river system threw their anchor out i guess the current swung the boat around and the uh the rope got caught up on the on the engine there and uh before he knew it he was taken on water and the boat was sideways so underwater capsized both of them both of them had their life jackets on though so just goes to show you how quick it can happen eh yeah especially in that cold spring water too he said he was he was hypothermic when he got out right he's he said his body temp dropped to 34 degrees already yeah it's only water for two minutes he said yeah which is pretty pretty chilly especially you know adrenaline's going there so you know things are lots of blood pumping and uh get cooled down pretty quick so life jacket make a plan and uh i had that happen to a buddy of mine he was telling me and it actually got caught on one of the the side cleats where you you know tie a a rope to to tie to a dock yeah and uh yeah he said man it was happens fast you know the, the rope just caught and he had just enough time to grab his knife and cut the rope because he he tried to to lift the rope over the cleat, but he said it was so tight. He's like, there's no yeah, way because yeah. that boat is straight sideways. All that water pressure is coming in. Oh, yeah. It's heavy. Well, man, it, it reminded me of, I, I thought about our canoe incident too, and it took zero time for that entire canoe to not only fill with water, but turn into a tin can. Yeah. yeah (laughs) so that that moving water is no joke that's for sure yeah Uh, just a reminder to be as safe as possible out there i was also thinking i i'm not sure if it would help but i'd imagine the the wool of would give you a bit of a fighting chance too eh? if you were oh big time if you wore it under as a base layer just to you know just to keep you warm enough to keep you surviving yeah totally totally man um, Anyways, glad he got off the lake safe is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great kind of maiden voyage for the swellfish, and it's impressive. Those things can hold like 1,700 pounds of gear or something like that. So um, That is impressive. We were uh, we were definitely, you know, talking about the benefits of having something like that up in Moose Camp and uh, just going over all the stuff that you can do in it that thing you know what i mean so how many how many props do you think it could hold i just probably a few as long as if the water's low for sure toss a few extras in there yeah no kidding eh? yeah but uh, if you guys are interested in checking out swellfish you can either head over to the instagram swellfish or head over to the website swellfish.co and uh, i think they got a bunch of deals going on a bunch of sales happening right now too so now is the time to grab one get in one familiar eyes yourself with it and uh, they got all kinds of cool packages like the anglers package that we have as well. Great for hunting, great for fishing. And uh, while we're plugging stuff, 
we were chatting about iHunter there as well. We all know iHunter is uh, the best mapping app that you can get on your phone pretty much. Waypointing, live location sharing with your friends and uh, all kinds of other cool stuff. And uh, they got the public land maps. They have the landowner maps and the base lap mayors. Base map layers can't talk and uh, if you want to get yourself 30 percent off a public landowner subscription head over to web.ihunterapp.com use a promo code panoramic 30 for 30 percent off man the, the one cool thing about ihunter that i i really start to smirk at now is that uh i know in those those a lot of those same facebook groups that you and i are in there's at least once a month there's a question about either crown land maps where can i get crown land maps or where can i get landowner maps yeah and it's gone to the point where I don't have to be the guy in the group saying, go check out iHunter. There's other people. There's so many people saying, Hey, there's this app called iHunter and you can get all those maps there for the most part. Yeah. On your phone. The The best part about it is like, not only do you get the landowner maps, but you get like high quality resolution satellite imagery too. Overlay. That, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a way to go. Yeah, Totally. All in one, man. One ticket deal. What do you have going on this weekend? How's uh, how's things up at the uh, Hecla for you? Well, I haven't been up there lately. We're still working on the camper a bit, but uh, I got shut out there. Hecla, Hecla is the uh, if you if you don't if you're not familiar with it, Hecla is the one of the areas on Lake Winnipeg where the kind of the it narrows down. So there's a bit of a narrows in the lake and. It's typically a, a lot more current there. It's a little deeper. And uh, this time of year, the fishing's usually red hot. So uh, we, I've seen a few people get into fish there, but for us, it hasn't been as hot as it normally is. So I think we might have to adjust tactics a little, but uh, yeah, I'm hoping to get out there next weekend when you guys are headed out. Yeah. Yeah. Slow start. I think with the, with the cooler weather, obviously push, push, push the spawn back, but we really haven't gotten like uh crazy warm weather until this week, really. So I think, uh, things will be turning up here pretty quick and that. Yeah. What I'd, I'd like to target some different species when I'm out there, maybe some, I know there's whitefish in the area and, uh, some perch and stuff like that, even burbot in the evening. Right. So we'll see. Yeah. See what we can do. That'd be nice, man. That'd be cool. Super cool. Anyways, without further ado, let's get this podcast rolling while we're on the topic of angling. And uh, we got Sean Simmons here from Anglers Atlas to chat about the uh, Anglers Atlas website and the MyCatch app and citizen science and online fishing tournaments. Here we go. All right, and on uh, today's episode of the uh, Panoramic Podcast here, we have an interesting guest and kind of uh, diving into a topic that we haven't really talked about yet, uh, which is a fishing app. And uh, Sean Simmons, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Chase and Sheldon. Where, uh, where are you tuning in from today? Uh, it's my bedroom in uh, Prince George, British Columbia. That's uh, home base for us. Is uh, it's about for for those that don't know where Prince George is, it's about nine hours north of Vancouver, kind of in the middle of of uh, British Columbia. So not on the coast, definitely interior. Nice, yeah. nice. I had a uh, back in the day. I used to tree plant, and we started out in Prince George, I believe, and did all my tra- like a little bit of training there, first aid, blah blah, blah made sure I was all ready to go tree planting. That's where we started Prince George. So I was there once. 
uh, for a short duration of life, about three or four days. Yeah, big big time forestry uh, center. Uh, we've got pulp mills, lumber mills, and 360 degrees of wilderness. So if you like the outdoors, it's it's a mecca. Nice. Is that what brought you to Prince George, the uh, the outdoors scene? <laughs> yeah, in a way. Uh, I, I went to Prince George in 1994 to start a degree in limnology, which is the study of lakes, because I was really getting into the, the science and, and uh, aquatic sciences at that time. And uh, yeah, I came up here and discovered all this incredible wilderness and, uh, and actually used that as the launch point for the Angler's Atlas. So that was kind of the, the birth is, is doing that uh, degree in limnology at UNBC. And it really opened my eyes to the incredible data that was available and, and how stuff like detailed fishing maps and stocking information and all that stuff is really a gold mine if you like fishing. So, so it all sort nice. of grew out of Prince George. Amazing. Well, before we get too much further into the podcast here, we can't start without our five burning questions. Um, so the first one I'm going to start out with is a pretty general question here, but if you had one last meal, what would that meal be? And uh, what would you wash it down with? Oh, okay. I would have to say a ling cod. Probably my, my favorite fish uh, is the ling. And uh, for a beer, uh, I'm quite a fan of the Smithics. So it'd be either be a Smithics uh, a red ale or it'd be uh, one of the local IPAs. Nice. And how are you going to prepare that link? Uh, just uh, fish fry style? Uh, uh, baked. Baked? Yeah. Nice. Nice. I've never had baked link cod, but I've, I've, uh, I have a buddy who owns a, um, fishing outfit. He kind of does it on the side in, in uh, Nanaimo. And, uh, he, we had some link cod tacos once and they're pretty good. It's good stuff. Mm, tasty. Yeah, totally. Uh, second question. Uh, what is your currently your favorite place to fish and why is it your favorite place to fish? Oh, that's a hard question. Okay, well, I'll give you uh, two recent ones. And so one's on the West Coast, and it's a toss-up. Uh, we were just there a couple of weeks some, with some buddies uh, fishing out of Westview Marina. It's out of Nootka Sound and Esperanza Inlet. And uh, and the the inter, the uh, it passes uh, along this long internal inlet. So it's like this massive set of narrow lakes. And then you, when you finally make your way out to the ocean, you've got wide open Pacific. And that's really hard to beat. You're right on the edge of the world. And uh, when we were out uh, fishing a couple of weeks ago, we we're about 20 miles offshore. And so you mm. really feel like you're on, on the edge of things right out there. And the other would have to be uh, the Fraser River and the Sturgeon. Nice. And uh, those are the toss-ups. That's that's a good uh, that's a good comparison. What uh, are you going after tuna when you're 20, 20 miles out there? Or are you still chasing salmon? Yeah, tuna aren't there yet. Uh, generally, they'll be later in the summer, but they are starting to make it all the way up uh, to Vancouver Island. Uh, usually, late August, uh, early September, the, the water warms enough so you can start to get into the tuna. And hopefully, yeah, yeah. we'll we'll get out and do some tuna uh, later this summer. Yeah, right on. Um, question number three. If you had one last place to fish, where would you go? Or sorry, let me let me rephrase that. Let me f- rephrase that because I, I feel like that that could get confusing with the last question I asked. But if uh, if what's your bucket list? If you had one last or one place on the bucket list to go fishing, where would you go? Oh, I was gonna actually answer that from a, another perspective. If if you had one place to to fish after you hit all the buckets, where would you return to? And I'd have to go to a small lake north of Sudbury. So I grew up in Sudbury. Uh, uh, and uh, and we had a fly-in camp north of, north of Sudbury on a place called Helen Lake and, and a camp on an island. 
that would probably be the place I'd want to go. I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but that's the first thing that popped into mind when you asked that question. If I'm bucket listing, oh, I, I tarpon. I don't know. There's so many buckets. Uh, I was talking <laughs> to some guy who's doing alligator gar in Texas. I'd love to try that. That'd be wicked. Nice. Did your did your say your family owned uh, like a cabin, a remote cabin? Yeah, just a small cabin on a on a on a fly-in lake north of Sudbury. Oh, nice. That's awesome. And and uh, somebody in your in your family had uh, had some wings or did you guys have to charter every time you went in there no we uh i grew up on uh float planes so uh so that I, I i i don't fly anymore but i used to fly uh in in my younger years so nice awesome okay question number four here we go this one's a, a little bit off topic but uh what's one fear that you want to conquer <laughs> Okay, how many fears that I need to conquer? I, I would say uh, the, the biggest fear is that uh, not being able to successfully turn this idea of citizen science into a viable, repeatable business model. That's a good one. Because it is, it is a very different beast than any sort of conventional business that I've ever, ever ran. And, and there's a lot of challenges to it. So the biggest fear is we don't make it work. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. I could see that for sure. And uh, question number five, I'm not sure if you're a hockey fan, but uh, who's going to win the Stanley Cup? The Leafs. <laughs> <laughs> what year? <laughs> 67. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Sheldon, what's your prediction on Stanley Cup right now? I'm going to probably just say Colorado. Yeah? They're steamrolling through, so. Yeah. Them. Yeah. yeah, they kind of caught Edmonton there the other night. Before we get yeah, going the- here... Sorry, Sean, I, if I cut you off, um, but I want to talk to you quick about that citizen science. You've said it a few times. Can you just like maybe give me a brief like definition of what that is? I, I'm not too familiar with that. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of a, an odd term uh, for, for people that haven't been sort of within in a, some of the academic cir- circles. But really, it refers to the fact that uh, when, and maybe I'll step back a little bit and give you a little bit of the context. So. So uh, we've been running Anglers Atlas for over 20 years now, and we give free fishing maps to to anglers, and that's one of the reasons they like our website. And it was about five years ago, I was at a, at a conference, and I'm a scientist by training, and I was just presenting some of the cool ways that we engage anglers and the stuff that they share back, like they'll share certainly photos, like everybody loves the brag photo, right? right. Uh, they'll share uh, things like... Um, uh, you know, uh, warning, uh, access points, uh, species confirmations. And when I was talking with the, some of these researchers and sharing with them how, the, how we can work with anglers to generate data, they were lamenting the challenges that they face, whether they be in, in research or in management, in getting good data on the state of our fisheries. I mean, if you think about it, there's easily a million fish bearing waters in Canada, probably closer to 10 million, depending on how you, how you measure it. And we know almost nothing on the vast majority of these fisheries. We just can't afford to get data. You know, conventional methods are so expensive. You do creel surveys, they cost a lot. You do netting surveys, they cost a lot. But the anglers are out there. And most anglers that I know are strong conservationists. Not everyone. Some are idiots. But the most of the ones and the, the people I know, you know, they, they, they have a deep passion for the resource, for understanding it. And they're really, in many ways, amateur scientists. They're constantly watching the feed how the, the, the fish are responding, the timing, that sort of stuff, especially the people that spend like 100 days a year or 150 days out there. You're just by nature going to absorb what's happening. And so the idea is all these anglers who are out there, passionate conservationists, can we find a way to systematically start collecting catch data and other, other observations 
that can help the researchers and 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 some managers Un, better understand the state of their resource. And it depends on which researcher and which manager we're talking about. But the idea is there's an army of anglers out there and a lot of passionate anglers. And let's bring them into the fold, bring them into the, the scientific process and have them help answer some of these challenging questions that we face in fisheries. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure it does. I, and I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead on Chaser. I know he's going to be kind of running this podcast, but it's all good. I, we, we just had a we just had a guest on not too long ago, and we're talking about bear hunting. And this is why I'm asking the question is because he was telling us with bear hunting, like one of the things he's a outfitter in northern Manitoba, and one of the things he's got to do is fill out some sort of like paperwork for the bears harvested in that in his zones, which in my mind is like, oh, that's kind of like citizen science. Like it's you know um, the people actually hunting creating data and, and submitting it to whatever government agency that wants this data for numbers or whatever. So that's kind of how I, or why I asked it is because it kind of reminded me of the, of this previous episode, but. Yeah, totally. And, and in, in reality, it's not a new thing from, from fisheries. I mean, a lot of fishery managers and researchers have been using angler logbooks for decades, generations, really. And if you think about it, those angler logbooks are, are sort of the old school form of citizen science where you're recording this stuff. And so long as you can pass that off to somebody that will sort of amalgamate the data and then analyze the data, anglers have been doing it for ages. I think what, what's different now is that we're able to do it at a scale previously un, unknown or impossible uh, just because of the technology. So, right. for example, we, we, you know, we, we've got uh, about a million anglers who visit the platform each year. They don't all give data, but we can basically solicit uh, basic trip information from them and then and uh, through that get data on literally thousands of lakes and rivers and ocean destinations across the country just by asking them a few basic questions. Huh. Yeah, that's super cool. That's amazing. That's it's funny because I, I, I've been uh, with with my job at the MWF, I, I spend a lot of time kind of learning about fish as much as I can. And I like this is one of the, the freshwater fishes in Manitoba is, is probably the best resource that I use for, for learning anything species specific because it kind of breaks it down in layman's terms. And uh, it's an easy document to read. But, uh, you know, you go through all these these uh the fish in there and it's all it all references the reports and stuff like that and and some of the rarer species you know oh there might be a report in 1943 that a fish was caught up here but there hasn't been another one recorded since and i'm i'm thinking in my mind how like or another example is how like a quillback is often uh often thought to be like a, a carp or something like that so you know the, the the occurrences that are not so likely could be a lot more likely if they're being documented and um, analyzed by somebody who knows what they're looking at pretty much too in my mind yeah yeah totally i mean the more the more eyes you have on a on a on a fishery, the more the greater the chance you're going to spot any any differences, or or you're going to reinforce things that you've already already seen. It's like okay, we know this because it's consistent with what we've seen before. But in some cases, we'll see things we haven't seen before, and and it'll it won't align with the the historical record or the the other uh, survey form. And it's in those cases that I get really curious. It's like well, everything else is aligning up. Why isn't this one aligning up? Like, for example, we uh, so we published a, a paper recently uh, doing an Alberta comparison. 
looking at met, uh, data coming in from anglers. And this was our first year we were doing the citizen science stuff in 2018. We were saying, okay, how does angler data from my catch compare with three conventional methods? One being a mail-in survey that DFO does every five years. The second being two creel surveys that we're doing on the, the Bow River and the Livingston River old man uh, system in Southern Alberta. The third was the fall index netting surveys that they do across Alberta. And things lined up really well with the survey we did uh, with the DFO and we were getting a, a good representation of anglers. So it wasn't highly biased. We were getting similar results as what their national survey did. So it's like, great, okay, it's building confidence. Then we did a comparison of the Creel surveys and we got nearly identical catch rates calculated, which was brilliant. <laughs> and they were both in the same year. Now, the interesting part is once you go to the netting surveys, the data doesn't align as much, but was really interesting. We did a comparison with pike and with walleye. The walleye, we, we saw some comparisons that were similar. So it seemed to indicate it in the same way. The pike was way off. So when everything else is aligning, and but yet the pike for those 17 uh, uh, water bodies where they did fall index netting, it was way off. And you got to think, well, what's going on there? I'm not saying our data is right, and there's wrong or vice versa it's saying there's more of a question that we can now investigate here why aren't we getting very similar results when we're getting them similar everywhere else right mm -hmm. so just really interesting stuff you can pick pick out when you're starting to collect independent data sets yeah that's cool did you did you guys ever figure out what the uh what the differences were there or what was causing it uh, just theories at this point. I mean, that's that's yeah. where you know these sorts of questions will lead to more work. I mean, one of the theories is is that uh, anglers are really good catching pike in shallows where these netting surveys don't do a good job. Right. So the question is, are anglers overrepresenting the pike or are netting surveys underrepresenting the pike? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or somewhere in between, right? Yeah. Well, I guess uh, depends on how many beers uh, them pike fishermen have, because I know Sheldon after he gets a couple of them, the fish stories start rolling, and <laughs> I think a couple times he even had uh, the uh, what's it called, uh, free willy on the end of his line there. <laughs> yeah. I like telling stories. Why do you think I wanted to start a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Um, so, so let's jump back to the start here a little bit and I, and I want to get, um, I'm always interested in people's journey and I, I like, uh, the, your early days back in Ontario, you're going into these fish, your, your cabin flying in, you got your pilot's license and then, and, uh, how long were you, you're just a float endorsed, uh, bush pilot for X amount of years kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't do it professionally. I just got it when I was going to high school and, and then university. And it was more out of interest than anything else. And, you know, I grew up around float planes and and uh, and, and my dad flew float planes and he still flies float planes. And and so it was just, uh, you know, you, you get raised in that environment and that's become second nature. So you really develop an appreciation for, especially on, on a float plane. I mean, you, you've got 100,000 airports in northern Ontario you can go to. It's just fabulous. Yeah. And uh, you develop a real appreciation for, for nature. And, and kind of like Sheldon, I also tree planted. So spent a lot of time in the bush uh, growing up. Uh, and and just uh, and that's so how I found found the, the my uh, sort of academic training. So that's how I got into uh, the study is called limnology, which is the study of lakes, but essentially aquatic sciences. And that's that's it fueled the passion on that side. So then I went to uh, university in Western did an economics degree, realized that was a big mistake, turned around, <laughs> uh, got my biology undergrad, or I actually never finished the biology undergrad, but then uh, got accepted to a master's program 
specifically on environmental science. And that was in Prince George. And so that's where really everything sort of started around the, uh, the Angler's Atlas. Nice. That's cool. Uh, jumping back there quick too, to the, the aviation side of things. I, I was uh, a helicopter pilot for 10 years uh, previous to this. And uh, as like my favorite thing, when you talk about like having a hundred thousand airports or whatever in Northern Ontario and, Every, every time in my travels, especially when I was going to new territory that I knew I might be coming back to, I'd always like GPS every like set of rapids that I want to fish or a mouth <laughs> of a river or something like that and fish here, fish here, fish here kind of thing all the way along. So uh, I, I just imagine some of the other people looking at the GPS thinking, what the heck? <laughs> but the one, uh, thing I wanna, uh, the one thing I want to ask you, Sean, sorry, Chase, is that... Uh, when you're getting in, like you're talking about how you want to get into the study of like lakes and stuff. And so th- the reason why I'm asking this question is because when I was growing up, I, like I had no idea what I wanted to be, first of all. And then second of all, I th- I think that would be the last thing I'd want to be. Although I'm like a huge outdoors person and love lakes and love fishing and all this stuff. But like, how would you even get the idea of like, hey, man, I want to study lakes and see how that, that all ticks? I guess it's just all all part and parcel of of the outdoors uh, and water. So I grew up on water, grew up on a lake. Uh, you're you're flying into a lot of these these remote uh, waters. There's there's something really kind of almost magical about about water, flowing water, still water, and then the life that emerges from it. And it just always fascinated me. And I never had a, an idea. So how does a lake even work? Like how how do you measure a lake? How can you tell if a lake's doing well or, or there's problems or how do you how do you know, um, you know, what what kind of lake supports really great uh, fisheries? What kind of lake doesn't support fisheries? So that was just curious. Uh, and uh, and I had an opportunity to study a local lake here in Prince George. It went through a massive fish kill in 1993. So it was a ready made project uh, for me. So that's uh, that's really where it, it all all took off. Hmm. That's cool. Um, I, I'm going to circle back to this later on in the podcast, but I, I'm interested in like to hear if there's any like mind blowing facts that you can like present us with on, on water and water bodies and lakes that might blow our mind, but, uh, <laughs> we'll carry on here to the, uh, to the next portion of it. So you're, so you moved to Prince George and, uh, you're now pursuing, uh, more education and, uh, and, and then you, you start up the angler's atlas and then was the my catch app at the same time or was it just angler's atlas when you when you started that up yeah it was just angler's atlas and the model was uh let's tell stories about lakes and rivers across the country and so we we do up maps and that was the the real key thing we found some amazing well we i found some amazing maps when i was doing the research and uh, detailed underwater structure. They show you where the shoals are. You can see see where the islands are. You can really get a sense of what the lake looks like uh, beneath the water. And I know when I love maps. So when I when I'm looking at them, I'll I'll stare at them. And the, each map tells its own story. So what we want to do is, well, let's take the map and let's talk to somebody that fishes that area, either lives on the lake or has a has a, a has a resort on the lake or or does some guiding on the lake or sells tackle uh, in uh, nearby, uh, the lake and let's tell their story mm-hmm. and let's just, so I just go in and interview, uh, local tackle shops, local resorts, and then tell their stories. And then to make money, we'd sell advertising. So that's never an easy, easy task. But back then, uh, the print media was still strong. Newspapers were still fairly strong. And so we started, uh, publishing with, uh, first with black press, they have, they have chains of newspapers across Western Canada, 
And so we'd run weekly fishing features in the newspapers. And, uh, and that was a really cool thing because you could get to see a different lake each week in the newspaper. And, uh, from, from there, uh, we realized, well, let's just put them into a booklet and then have magazines. And so for a number of years before my catch was even a thing, we'd publish these magazines for regions across Canada. We did, uh, I think for several years, we did it coast to coast minus Quebec and, uh, and they were really popular, but as anyone who follows print media knows, that's not an easy business model uh, Mm -hmm. anymore. So we just basically had the website and the print magazines and the magazines kind of, kind of dropped off with COVID, but, uh, we've got a strong website, but a million anglers a year on that. And so we really started thinking, okay, well, let's spend some effort on the digital side. Let's figure out how we can, how we can not, not only uh, provide a service to anglers, but how do we really drive that information cycle back? Now we've got to be careful. Secret spots have to say stay secrets. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised I haven't said it earlier in the in the podcast. It's usually one of the first things out of my mouth <laughs> is that we've got to protect the privacy of the of, of the angler's data while at the same time making it accessible and available for science. So the rule and uh, the rule of thumb that we've got is that latitude and longitude is never released publicly. We do have some data sharing agreements with some some of the, the researchers, but they're under strict condition. They can't release that. But we want to be able to use this for science. And so we, we will reveal it, let's say, a large water body. Like you caught this fish on Lake Winnipeg. Well, good luck finding that sweet spot uh, with that information. And if it's a really tiny lake, we might generalize it to a watershed area. So you can't reverse engineer the location, but you can use it from a management perspective or from a research perspective to really understand the, the fishery. So. I kind of went down a rabbit hole there, but uh, I wanted to emphasize that secret spots because that's a really important part of uh, what we do is, is we're building trust with the anglers. We've got to make sure we, we protect the, the, the privacy, their privacy and, and, and the privacy and integrity of the data. Yeah, totally. I, I, that's kind of one of the things that, that I always think about too, is just like, I mean, I, I'm not so concerned about it, but I know there are guys out there that will like take their secret spot to their deathbed with them. And, <laughs> yep. and also like I was part of the, the Creole survey this, this winter on like Winnipeg and, you know, there were, we would get people through the, through the survey that would just say like, nope, we didn't catch any fish. And then there would be a, a check stop a little bit up the road and there would be fish falling out of the tailgate kind of thing. So it's, you know, you get a interesting group of people out there and I, I have no idea why the, uh, most of the people, um, aren't interested in, in disclosing some of that information, even if it is, you know, secretive and, and, and not, not, uh, not shared, but there's, there's for us, with some people, there's almost like, uh, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but just, uh, almost they, they get their, their, uh, the hair on their back of their neck stands up to, to like share this data with somebody else. Cause they just don't want to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I do, I do understand that in, in, in some respects. I mean, if it's a stocked lake, I mean, and, it, and it's a, a popular water body, it's probably not a really strong reason why you'd protect uh, that information. But, you know, you think of that sweet bull trout hole on a mountain stream mm-hmm. that gets out, that gets, that gets hammered. And from a conservation perspective, that gets fished out very quickly. Yeah. So, and we've all heard the stories about, uh, you know, some areas getting totally fished out because there was amazing photos on social media and, and people just flocked to the location. So I, I do understand that. And I, that's sort of the, the, the reasoning behind that. Um, and, and 
I, I've heard it often enough that it's, I know it's a major concern with a lot of anglers. So that had to be a really important point that we addressed right up front. Secret spots stay secret. So you'll hear it uh, often. We've got policies in place. We've got systems in place. There's only four of us on the team that actually can access the, the detailed location data. And that's like the two developers who build the, the backend software for it, myself and Jamie, who's our GIS uh, technician. But, you know, they're all they're all under confidentiality agreements that they're not allowed to release that either. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And is uh, cool to think about. I mean, we there, I can't say we have that much of a problem with like places getting fished out. There's there's obviously some increased traffic with social media in certain areas um in manitoba but i don't think we've run into like a place getting fished out essentially um in manitoba and i i'm assuming this it's the the smaller streams and the smaller holes in uh in bc and in the mountains are definitely at increased risk and i remember having this conversation with april Voki actually and i had asked her you know what what are some things that we can do as, as conservationists to you know, help preserve some of these at-risk locations. And, and her words were just like, don't promote it. Don't put it on social media if you want to go and help, um, you know, stop something or help uh, increase fish populations. That's like boots on the ground work and don't promote it on social media and keep it off the web kind of thing. Because she's like, same thing. There's, there's probably, you know, most of the anglers – know that it's probably not going to be a good spot to go fishing and you don't want to go fish it out but there's always going to be a handful of guys that'll go or people that'll go in there and uh kind of wreck it for everybody so that is uh very very important yeah yeah and I've, i see a lot and there, there's a sensitivity and it it depends which jurisdiction you you go you go to i find some areas are very sensitive about it uh, uh and a lot of the mountain streams in particular yeah yeah i could totally see that so it is uh it is kind of crazy though too if you think about it they're chasing um just in manitoba here there seems to be like a lot of people on the internet and stuff that are like blurring out their background and then like holding up a nice big walleye and it's just like 99 percent of the time those are at lake winnipeg you know and they it's almost like they do it just to get people to ask them hey where were you fishing when you kind of already know like they're probably on lake manitoba or you know some of these good walleye fisheries in manitoba I just think it's funny how some guys go to the extreme and it's almost to get the attention in my mind sometimes. Yeah. Especially on a, on a fish, like, like a walleye too, or a greenback from Lake Lake Winnipeg. Cause it's, you know, excuse me, it's, it's pretty obvious where that fish comes from just by looking at it. Yeah. And Lake Winnipeg is a pretty big lake. So I don't think you're going to be telling the secret spot from uh, one photo. Yeah. You go to the secret spot and you'll never catch you know what I mean? You'll probably catch a hundred little ones and then you're one master like any other spot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you guys, uh, get the, get the app fired up and you're getting into the citizen science type type of stuff, but you do, uh, some tournament stuff and you're pushing some, some tournament angling, um, which is kind of cool too, because in my mind, this is something that's going to help out a fishery as well. Like in the past, and, and still lots of the big tournaments they still do you know you have to weigh in and you have to uh, put your fish in live wells and and they do a good job of of um, caring for the fish on the way to the weigh-ins or the measure measurings or whatever they are but now you guys are using the science and the development of your app to actually use this for the pretty accurate 
tournaments, fishing tournaments. Yeah, totally. And that was that was really a, a discovery out of COVID of all things. Uh, COVID hit. Uh, we sort of limped through the gate with our magazines. Did the last round of magazines that we published in 2020, but we got two uh, uh, strong tournament anglers on our team, and uh, and we saw all these tournaments across the country being closed. And we already had the app that that uh, where you could do catch reporting, and we thought, well, here's an opportunity to start running catch photo release tournaments and it hits a lot of key sweet spots like one is uh the idea you catch a fish put on a measuring device take a picture the fish is back in the water in less than a minute Mm -hmm. so that's a strong conservation uh message second you've got a high resolution photo of the fish there you've got an actual length measurement that has to be checked your data quality shoots through the roof and third it's something fun and certainly the competitive anglers love a chance to not only uh, you know show off what what they know and how good they are but they can win some good money like our walleye wars series first first prize payout it's a ten thousand dollar payout right and so that's it's some some good good uh, a good return on on the investment so to speak so that was a really it was like that that holy trinity all came together and the the really neat thing that i discovered is that tournaments are structured or, or you can adjust tournaments in so many ways like it doesn't have to be just one format we've set this up so we can structure tournaments uh, of any length uh, we can structure tournaments across any type of area whether it be a, a large area or multiple water bodies or just a single water body or a space within a water body all do using our gis uh, back end stuff to control that and you can also control the the prizes as a way to incentivize. So what, what I'm, what I mean here is, is it's a perfect experiment because you can say, okay, well, I want more than just the largest fish in this. Like I need to know the full length distribution. So you not only have, you always have the biggest, the longest fish, but what you can also add in is a prize for like a lottery ball prize. So every fish you catch increases your chance of winning the lottery. Then you get the full length distribution. You get all the fish in that water body, which is a more important measurement than just the largest, right? Mm-hmm. Or let's say I need to know what sort of species are in this. We set up a series, uh, uh, one of our, our former staff, Shana Hamilton, she set up multi-species madness in Saskatchewan. And what a really neat idea where it wasn't which uh, the longest walleye, it was how many different species you can catch in the province over the set time. And so the neat thing is you can use the prizing model to incentivize the type of data you're going after. And so from a researcher, as, as a scientist, that's the perfect way of setting up experiments and adjusting the experiments. So I'll give you two examples of, of what we're working on now. So one is uh, working with uh, state of Iowa right now, uh, the DNR, they're having a challenge. They, they put a lot of energy into their walleye stocking program. Uh, they, they basically uh, go out and collect all brood stock or they put money into the hatcheries and they put money into uh, distributing those uh, fish across the state. Now, it's really expensive to run creel surveys. So they only run two or three across the state. They don't have a good sense of what's happening in the rest of the state. So here's the experiment. We run a two-month tournament. and We're right about the halfway mark on this. You can fish anywhere in the state. And we incentivize not only the, the longest fish, but uh, the most fish. I think I'll change that in the, in the future to a more of a lottery ball, because I think that's a better incentive uh, for everyone to, to report their catches. So we get full length distribution of the walleye there. 
And we're also incentivizing the zeros because that's also really important Creel surveys. Mm -hmm. So just going out and starting a trip is enough to qualify you for that prize, the tough luck prize we, we give it. So that way we're capturing all the necessary data. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the data we're getting from, from Iowa and we're going to compare it and benchmark it against the three Creel surveys. And if we're getting good, consistent data, then that means uh, that we have some confidence that the rest of the state is going to be it's going to be representative as well and so that'll give iowa a sense of what's happening on their walleye fishery across the whole state and so that's where you take a tournament model and apply it to a very specific management objective Se second example is what we're doing in spokane and this is um in, in the build-up to the american fisheries Society's conference uh taking place in spokane end of august what we're doing is setting up a bass tournament on a local lake the difference is we're tagging a bunch of bass beforehand and so, again, we've got to get anglers to report every catch, but we'll be able to do in real time a population estimate on that lake based on the ratio of tagged to untagged uh, fish that are reported through the anglers. So it's just a, an amazing way to start running these wicked uh, scientific experiments uh, to get important uh, fisheries answers. And the tournament model just is brilliant in that respect. Yeah, that's amazing. And I was, I was looking, I was reading an article on your website as well. Um, you have some blogs and some, some research articles on there too. And, uh, one of the things you were working on was the, the mark and recapture program through the high quality photography, obviously. Um, how did, how did that work out for you guys? Oh, that's still, that's a long-term, uh, play we're starting. And so that was in partnership with, uh, um, uh, Nathaniel Hitt out of Univer uh, USGS, uh, out of, uh, I think he's out of, is he Virginia or Denver? I can't remember which one, but it was, the idea is if you can use a photo of a fish uh, to identify not the species, but the actual fish, you can use it like a tagging program. Mm -hmm. Now they're, they're the first set of experiments they were running on were uh, with brook trout because brook trout had uh, really clear spots and, and uh, very distinctive patterning patterning. But we think that can be applied to others. Certainly striped bass, it's like a barcode, right? You should be able to, to like barcode that fish. And so there's some early results that are encouraging, but that's that's a long game. That's going to require a lot lot more uh, uh, time and machine learning. But, you know, that's one of the really exciting things you, you can start to do with this is you've got high resolution data. And and if we do that with the mark recapture, uh, like that, that uh, tournament, uh, uh, the bass tournament in Newman Lake in Spokane, uh, we could probably use that data to help uh, uh, feed into the machine learning model because you need to train the, the models to, to learn to how to identify the individuals. Yeah. So we're building up that, that database that we can use for, for machine learning training. That's very cool. I think that that's amazing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like, like you said, it's just like a fingerprint for, for humans, right? It's just the, the markings on a fish and you see it quite a bit. Not, I mean, not quite a bit, but you you do see it on the internet with uh, with fish that have unique markings on it that are easy to identify for for anglers visually. You know, you see them catch and recapture the fish or whatever a week later or the next day or whatever it may be, and it's always a a big interesting post on uh, on the internet. But uh, I'm sure it happens more than we actually know about. Just because lots of the lots of the fish, you know, you can't. It's it's hard for us to tell tell them apart. Mm -hmm. So you guys have been in business for twenty three years now. Is that right? Yeah, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. That's a that's a pretty good success uh, story right there. Um, man, I don't know if uh, 
I'm just trying to think about where I'm going to be in 23 years, but it's uh, it's quite quite the story. Um, what uh, so besides the the uh, info with the um, working on the surveys and stuff like that, where else do you want to take Angler's Atlas and the MyCatch app? What else is there? Anything else on the radar for you guys? Yeah, I think this is. Um... Yeah, probably the best time, best uh, way to sort of summarize uh, what we're we're trying to do next, or, or where we're trying to go, is uh, with uh, a conference uh, that's taking place. Like I mentioned, the tournament in Spokane. So that's uh, in uh, just in the buildup to the American Fisheries Society conference, and this is a conference we've attended last several years. And the American Fisheries Society, uh, just for for any of your audience that doesn't know about it, is one of the largest scientific organizations in the in the world. If uh, re- regarding fisheries, and it's been around over a hundred years. They've got thousands of members, both uh, researchers, like at universities, as well as managers who work for DNR, as well as uh, any any nonprofits uh, and like uh, clubs like Manitoba Wildlife Federation. Uh, any biologists uh, would belong to that uh, organization. Probably also belong to AFS or certainly aware of it. So the the key here is we're really at the cutting edge of a lot of really interesting science, and we're still just at the early stages and it's really vague and we're not sure what's where it's going to go and, and i say this we as we collectively people who are sort of engaged in this space and there's there's no clear uh path moving forward we're all having to invent this stuff as as it's going through and so i think it's really important for us to find a way to develop professional networks where we can share stories and this is something that we've been doing for the last well the last couple of years at afs like last year in Baltimore was the first in-person uh, conference we were at in a while. And we set up a full day symposium on angler engagement. So we brought in, uh, let's say, Dan Doherty out of Texas. He, he was talking about how he's working with guides and alligator gar to get a better sense of what's happening with the alligator gar. Beyond just the netting surveys, by working with guides, you get a new set of data that you can start to understand with. Talking with... Um, uh, uh, the Fraser River Sturgeon Society, they've been collecting high resolution data on the sturgeon population for the lower Fraser for over 20 years and have such a beautiful uh, population estimate, really tight error bars because all the anglers, or not all the anglers, but a lot of the anglers, mostly guides, are, are tagging the fish and they've actually got uh, uh, acoustic tags. So you can, you can scan them and identify them if they've been caught before. And so they've done a really good uh, estimate on that. And then you get uh, like out of... Uh, uh, Drew Dutter out of Florida with the Trophy Bass uh, program or, or um, uh, Susanna Music out of Virginia Institute and the tagging programs that they're doing with this. So all these places where researchers and managers are working with anglers to achieve scientific goals. The idea is let's build a community around that. Let's mm-hmm. build some sort of professional network around that, share best practices. Like we're just one part of this much larger story, but there really isn't any coherence to it yet. And so moving forward and thinking about where we want to go is we want to build more of a, that professional network of researchers and managers who are working with anglers and the anglers are a core part of that. So last year we, we did a live broadcast on Facebook live of the conference. We didn't get tons of turnout, but the idea was anglers could tune in and they can ask questions right back to the researchers. And that's what we wanted to do. We want to fuse that, that the anglers who are really interested in the science and, and probably in many cases are better than biologists in some respects because they're out on the water. And so they really have a, a good sense of what's going on, but they may not be trained in statistical models or all that other stuff. Let's bring them into the fold and let's really, uh, ideally, uh, 
you know, revolutionize the way that fishery science is done by including the anglers of active participants, not only of contributing data, but being able to have discussion and dialogue, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So I don't know if that sort of is a little too vague for where what, where your question was, but hopefully that uh, gives you a little clarity. I think that's good. That's great, man. It's uh, it's quite the interesting road, and it's it's uh, listening to your story. It's interesting to kind of hear how you got there. I mean, obviously, COVID has has pushed uh, the the most of our population to really uptake in the in the digital online media world. Right. So same with us. We we were doing like 90% of our, our podcasts in person prior to COVID. And then once COVID hit, you know, we had to adapt and uh, we started doing them over Zoom and Skype. And then, you know, it, it opened a few more doors for us. Obviously, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation in person. Um, so here we are. It's a, a bit of a advantage for us. But uh, I am curious what what are some of the some of the hurdles that you kind of have to come over and what what are some of the some of the feedback you're getting right now it seems like you're you're most of the people involved here um are excited about it are are working towards the same goals that you are but what are some of the challenges that you're kind of coming across right now oh the the big one and by a long shot is the money so you've got to find a way to generate revenue to keep this thing going because I've got two developers uh, that you got to keep paid. You've got to keep your designers paid. You've got to keep your, your tournament director and your team. We've got a catch team paid. And so that's the biggest challenge is making sure that the revenue model fits. And that's that's where, as I mentioned earlier, my biggest fear is, is uh, making sure we, we can get to that point. And so a couple of the strategies that we use is one is the tournament model. There's a little bit of revenue we can make on the entry fees, marginal. There's a little bit you can do there. So if you, if you can get a you know a percentage off uh, our, our idea is we do an 80% payout. Shopify takes a bit, the bank takes a bit, and then we basically mm -hmm. will take, uh, take, take what's left over. So there's a little bit of revenue there, nowhere near what's needed. Then we go after the sponsorship. So, you, you know, Garmin is a sponsor this year for Walleye Wars. So that, that helps bring, bring the revenue up a little bit more, but still a ways off from that break-even point. And so to fill that gap, is all about going out and getting research projects. And there are some very large research grants out there. And so it's sort of, you know, you think about uh, university research projects, they can go after 50,000, quarter million dollars. Some of them, I mean, Fish Gen or, or Fish, um, oh, I think I totally messed, messed up the, the name of it, but I think they got, they got millions of dollars for a national multi-year research project. So there are some funds over there. It's just, we're outside of the normal loop. We're not a university uh we're not mm -hmm. in that traditional academic side we're a business um and so figuring out how to get that and that's always that's probably where the biggest struggle is now is making sure we get enough of those uh research grants to come in to cover the cover the spread that we're missing between the the tournament revenue and the break-even point yeah totally and it i feel like for the for the fishing world um it's almost like to me, it feels like we're just on the cusp of having that bubble break where, you know, there there's the the or not the millennials, but the the baby boomers that are still you know very much um, a good population of the fishing industry, and that might not be all in to to bind into the technology and everything that that uh, that Anglers Atlas maybe has to offer, but coming up behind them 
is, you know, the millennials and everyone that's that's kind of been uh, growing up in the tech world, the tech industries that can kind of see stuff a little bit differently than than uh, the uh, the older crowd can and might be able to embrace this coming up in the future and and, and really help support and, and drive drive the business forward. Yeah, and I think you really you hit the head, you hit the nail, or the hit the nail on the head. Is that what it's called? But the 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 concept that there's there's an old guard that has a fixed way of doing things historically, and and nothing against the the the, the systems that have been placed for generations. They they've evolved. They they've done a good job, but they don't know how to take that next step into this new space. And I and I speak with. Uh, agencies across the country at multiple level and into the u.s and it's the same thing over and over a lot of them see the potential see the value but they're just not sure how to get there and very few of them are ever rewarded for taking risk Mm -hmm. so it's easy if you just oh i don't know if i want to do that that could really compromise you know or or make my life really difficult i want to see other people do it first then maybe i'll start test testing this out um but but I'm, I'm not going to be the first one. So the challenge is finding those first few risk takers who said, there's a big opportunity here. And we, we know we've got a big challenge here. And sure, it might not work, but let's give it a try. Let's test it out. And so that's really the goal for us is to find those, those innovators, those, um, those early adopters who want to try, try something different to, to, to see if it'll work. And then I think we'll get some traction there. And then once that happens, then that floodgate of all, all these younger people, like it's amazing the number of young, uh, young professionals I talk to, they get it right away. They see it, but they're in no position of authority mm-hmm. and really are, uh, don't have a lot of, um, of influence in, in those decision-making levels yet. Yeah. So I, yeah. Think, I think it's going to change, but it's going to take uh, a few more years yet. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking too, specifically like with the, with governments and stuff like that there, um, the, the technology side of things is never not, not usually the they're not usually on the the breaking edge of things um in that sense but uh yeah i think i think it's this from my perspective this whole idea is amazing and could really like save people a lot of time and money if you know if you have these databases full of all this information that are exactly what fisheries biologists are looking for pretty much right yeah, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Um, Sean, I got a couple questions and, and it's maybe a scenario or two I want to throw at you and see. And just to be honest with you, is because I have very little knowledge of like, let's say in quotes, um, like online angling. I mean, I've been an angler all my life, but I very rarely, um, you know, submit stuff online um, until we started with Panoramic. We, you know, I started putting pictures online and stuff, but nothing into any sort of database or app system. But so I got a few questions for you. Um, so I guess my first one would be like, you talked about um, about submitting um, information on lakes and fish, et cetera. But is there anywhere on your site or on the app where you can check out maybe some of the lakes that you frequent and find out data? Like, is there public data when it comes to populations and research that you guys have done? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question and something I grapple with. So the Anglers Atlas was set up as a place where we share things publicly. So you go to our website, you can search for thousands. We've got over a quarter million water bodies you can search. And for each water body, we have we have maps that we have found and people have made posts there. So there's all sorts of public information. 
the data, once we went to MyCatch and recognizing the importance of secret spot, stay secret, we've been really reluctant to start sharing that information. We're starting to at points, but it, it's got to be at the, it, it can't violate that, ult, that, that first principle of secret spot, stay secret. So right. it's, a, it's a delicate, uh, like we, we want to get the information out, certainly from a scientific perspective. But uh, we know we've got to be really careful about the, the information we release from the MyCatch stuff. You can still go to Angler's Atlas and people still post photos there. People will put markers on maps and do all sorts of stuff there. It's, it's open, but it's, it's, it's separate data from the MyCatch data. Yeah, I find it like very interesting in a lot of different perspectives because like I just, I know of like, for instance, like Fish Donkey is another app that's out there. I've noticed that they've done some tournaments and stuff. And like Chase was saying, like you were saying, for our generation and, you know, and, and a whole bunch of other people, some of it's super easy to use. And um, I guess my, my follow-up question to that would be the scenario would be like uh, for some of these smaller groups or these like hard, hardcore anglers that have in quotation, like my lakes, when it's like their cabins are on that, that specific lake, like how easy would it be for someone to be like, Hey, I'm fishing this, like, let's call it small lake. You know, I'm going to put together a little tournament or put together something through, through my catch app and hopefully all these local anglers that always frequent this lake, I'm going to advertise it with them. We're going to submit all this information. Is there any benefit to that angler? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, will he be able to find out some of the information that he submitted and like kind of understand what's happening at his in, in quotation at his lake kind of idea? Yeah, I guess in, in terms of the stuff that you report yourself, that you you get to see all of that so all your catch history is there you can see all your right. historical spots you can see your catch rates you can you can use that with with the app we do want to be able to share some of this so one of the things we do at the end of each event we'll do up a, a histogram a length histogram so you can see the full length distribution of all the fish at that event so we just did one for the striper cup on the miramichi and uh and and you, what's really cool is you can see the younger age classes too in that it's really quite striking like sharp uh, spikes at, at the younger age groups, right? Or the younger lengths, which you infer as younger age classes, right? So that's sort of one thing that we're doing to try and do this. But that's probably one of the areas where we're still very weak. And given that we got limited resources, it's really hard for me to put much energy into this. But I know it's an important thing is we've got to start telling the story a lot better back to the anglers. So when we get this data, we're doing the research, but how do we communicate that back to the anglers so that there's a feedback loop and right. so they can get that information. I'd, I'd say it's probably one of the areas that we're, we're weakest, but I recognize it. And if I can find some way to get some resources to fix that, it's certainly on the priority list. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing that is very interesting to me because there's one thing when it comes to angling in, in a lot of different jurisdictions is that you don't really know what's getting caught in certain lakes. And I mean, yeah, the, there's like local um, bodies that are doing surveys and, you know, stuff like what Chase has done with mental wildlife, like they do surveys and try to find out numbers. But in reality, there's so many lakes and so many places, it almost be, it'd be nice to have somewhere where you could just look up like, oh, in 2019, they had an estimate of this many fish or something, you know? Um, and the reason why I say that is because I, I do a little bit of research when it comes to like big game hunting in certain areas and then you try to figure out all oh, the you know there's a pretty good population of big game in this area of of whatever whatever province or state you're in and you might want to focus on it and and then and then on the other hand i always think like well then you give out this information then it gets overfished and then you're screwed so it's like it's super interesting to me how all this works out and then you can 
you know, add what you're doing plus what local groups are doing. And, and yeah, it'd be a messy plate, but I don't know. I just rambled on about nothing right there, but I just had to get that thought out because it's super interesting to me. Well, well, I did pick up one thing in what you were just saying. It's, it's finding that balance between getting the information out because that is important from a research and a science perspective, but not doing it in a way that jeopardizes the resource. So that's where right. the, that balance point comes in. So you don't want to give a latitude and longitude, but giving up, yeah, you caught it in Lake Winnipeg. You could even probably generalize it to like the South Basin or, or, or a large bay. But uh, it's finding that balance. Uh, so, well, and here to put the question back at you, what would be sort of the, the minimum area that you would want to see your data released for a, a good hunt area? So you can get your information out there, but you can't then reverse engineer it easily. So like what? Yeah. Like That's a, great, a great section question. or, uh, you know, like a couple square miles or would you want like a big watershed? And it's figuring out that balance. It's, yeah. it's funny. I was having a similar conversation here with one of my friends uh, a, a little while ago, and he's he's traveling to the States to um, – well, he wants to travel to the States to do an elk hunt. And um, with a lot of the, the states uh, south of the border there, they, they have their, their game hunting units, and they have all that statistical data on the website – about like the success rate on on the hunt and like how many tags get out and, and all that stuff. So I don't think there's the we have something like that yet in Manitoba, but I think it comes down a lot to being like a cultural thing of of sharing the data as well. Um, but even though the data isn't quite restricted to like the one specific area, it it it's still a big leap saying that like you know, there's this many hunters successful in an area, which, which can be like related to like this many were fish were caught, caught in this water body. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't answer your, your, your real question of how specific you'd want to be, but. <laughs> yeah, I think it's ongoing. It's, it's the sort of thing you, you come up with like at, at this, at this point, uh, and, and the rule of thumb I use is, can I reverse engineer the location? If I can, I've given away too much. If I, if I can't, then that's probably a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to share here, Sean, and I, I know we've had these conversations before about setting up tournaments and setting up a league and all that, but like, how easy is it for someone to, to get in contact with you guys and be like, hey, I want to run a fishing tournament. Can you guys help? Can you help me out with this? Yeah, pretty easy. It takes me about 15 minutes to set up the event on the back end. And then if you've already got your anglers, uh, you can be out fishing tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, there's a, uh, a couple of different ways we do it. If, if you want to manage everything yourself, it's basically just a standard set fee that uh, you pay per angler. And you reach out to myself or Jim, uh, our tournaments director, and uh, Jim Clark, and, and uh, we can get, get that set up real fast, real easy. If it's something a little more sophisticated, like where we're going to be uh, doing a lot of hands-on work, like some of these events, we, we do a lot of the promotion, we do the setup, and we also do all the catch approvals as well as doing customer support. Um, those, that's where it gets, uh, that's where we charge a fair, fair amount because we've got our full catch team on board for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it all depends what sort of scale of, of event you're looking for. Uh, but it's really easy to set up. Just reach out to to me or to Jim Clark, uh, and uh, and we can get you set up and going in no time at all. Right, and that's all run through the uh, the MyCatch app as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
break it down, you got anglersatlas.com? Correct. And that's where all the, uh, you'll find all the, the water body maps and all that sort of info. And then you got the MyCache that's going towards citizen science and the tournaments and everything like that. And where else can we find you on uh, on the internet? Oh, we do have a, 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 a Logan Lewis does our social media. He's, uh, I think he's got a, a podcast out of, out of Saskatchewan. You guys might know him. Um, but he does a lot of our posts on social media. So we've got a Facebook page on uh, for my catch. And for some of our tournaments, like our Walleye Wars has a dedicated Facebook page. Uh, uh, Multi-Species Madness does. And uh, some of our other, our ice fishing events uh, tend to have their own standalone Facebook pages. Nice, nice. Are, are you running any tournaments this summer across uh, across the prairies? Oh, yeah. We've got the Walleye Wars series kicking off. Yeah, I should probably emphasize that. Dallas will want me to <laughs> <laughs> promote the Walleye Wars series. <laughs> so that's really for, for the, 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 uh, the, I would say, the top few percentage of walleye anglers out there. And, uh, and it's a $250 entry fee and, uh, and uh, a big payout. Plus, we've got confirmed prizing from Garmin and a, and a couple of other sponsors. So definitely worth checking that out. You go to Walleye Wars. Um, I think it redirects you to the Facebook page and you can see all the upcoming dates. We've got one for Manitoba, uh, one for Ontario, one for Saskatchewan and one for Alberta. We're also hoping to do some uh, multi-species madness this summer. I've got one just kicking off on the West coast uh, from July and that the one on the West coast will be a, a more of a data play uh, for a research project we're doing on the West coast. And that'll be a two month event, but most of the, most of the events like the walleye wars and the, multi-species madness are 10-day events so you do a friday to the following uh, 10 days to the uh, full week and then to the sunday nice two weekends and full week yeah right on um okay you got to hit me with a couple cool water water body facts before we wrap this up okay my favorite or one of my favorite lakes is a lake south of prince georgia called quinnell lake now it's not in the town of Quinell. Um, it's about an hour and a half out of there, but it's the deepest fjord lake in the world, and it's made of three long arms: the western arm that goes into sort of the the uh, Rocky Mountains. That's where it goes down to over two thousand feet deep. I mean, it's just it's really wow. weird. It's almost eerie. It's just uh, super deep. The north arm's got these really cool beaches, and the east or the western arm. Uh, it extends into rolling hills, so three really neat ecosystems on on that uh, on that water body. So that's that's one of my 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 favorite lakes. Um, something about uh, some of the the lakes that go through big winter kills up here. I was just talking about this with my my daughter, and uh, and uh, just asking. So how does the oxygen get consumed in the winter? Well, if you've got a high sort of thick uh, organic matter at the uh, uh, making up the uh, sediment of the lake that'll often have what's called a high biological oxygen demand so it'll suck up the oxygen really quick and prompts a lot of these lakes uh, certainly in the central interior here Alberta has a, a, a big problems with this as well I expect it's common in, in Manitoba as well uh, where you'll have big winter kills so um, yeah let's see is there anything else uh, who are we talking about with that we were just had that conversation <laughs> with somebody about winter kill about not there being like enough snow on the lake to like reduce the sunlight enough so the 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 uh there's either like an algae bloom in the winter or like the 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 yeah the greenery doesn't doesn't die and it chokes out the fish 
we just had somebody on the podcast talking about that. I can't remember who it was now. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Does does anything live at two thousand feet in freshwater? Not that I know of. I'm sure there is, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of eerie just to think at how how deep that is. Oh so. God, that gives me anxiety thinking. You know, you know, what my biggest fear is. One of my biggest fears is diving down to the bottom of the lake and getting snagged on a fishing hook and drowning. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, you got to conquer that fear. Yeah. Do more dives, I guess, till I get yeah, snagged. <laughs> hey, Sean, we, Sean, we got a lake here, and I think I know the answer, but I want to ask you anyways. We got a lake here in Manitoba called uh, Little Limestone uh, in northern Manitoba, and it's like freshy blue colored, and then that's clearly because of the limestone. Is that correct? I, I, I'd have to, well, as a guess, I'd say that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought it'd be a simple answer. I, I've always, uh, we see, well, we see lots of pictures out and I've been there a few times and it's such, such a beautiful body of water. And, I'm, you know, you just assume because of the name, it must be limestone, but I'm no scientist. Yeah. And, and limestone is on the basic side. In fact, uh, uh, in, in some cases where, where you've got acidification of, of lakes, uh, limestone's a natural uh, antidote for that because it'll neutralize the acid. Oh, oh, interesting. No hmm. Cool. Well, Sheldon, any final words, buddy? Final, yeah, final? My final, final for you, Sean, is, um, yeah, coming into this podcast, like I said, I was uh, unprepared. And I, like, I'm not a huge online angler, but it really puts a new perspective for me to maybe looking into, you know, um, joining some of these apps and submitting some photos. And I mean, you know, for a lot of fisher people, a lot of anglers, it might not be submitting every single fish at every single fishing trip. But I mean, if you can maybe do your part and do a few here and there, by the sounds of it, it's, it's a good thing. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on to the show because it uh, opened my eyes to a, a whole new perspective when it came to comes online angling, let's say as, as a whole. So thank you very much uh, from me, myself. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and certainly if you're interested in the science side of things, uh, uh, we should stay, stay connected. And uh, the, the, the event that's going on in uh, Spokane end of August, uh, maybe get you guys plugged into that. Uh, and if yeah. there's any, any of the, um, the researchers working with anglers there, we could maybe get you uh, an interview with them or something. Yeah, that'd be great. And, and that's the thing too, is like, I was going to tell you after later is that for sure we'd have to stay in touch or, or stay connected because there's a lot of things that uh, I think we could help out with or, or try to help out with. So awesome. Well, it's been great, Sean. I am, uh, excited to see what the future will bring here i'm excited about uh the whole new you know documenting a fish all over wherever you can fish pretty much and uh kind of putting that into the database and i think it's going to be amazing for fisheries manage management in the future and uh yeah i i i'm looking forward to it i really am thanks again well, for really coming on i appreciate it guys sorry we'll do that again <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for coming on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Yeah, it was great, guys. Thanks. This episode of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Jiffy Ice Augers. Head over to jiffyonice.com and check out their full lineup of augers and gear there. And that's it for episode 124 with Sean Simmons. Thanks again, Sean, for joining us on that episode. Uh, pretty cool what he's putting together there and uh, where the world of like fishing tournaments and fishing science is going with all that. But anyways, right now in our store, if you 
everyone is interested, anyone is interested, uh, we have Father's Day sale going on. If you buy any product of Catch and Cook, receive any of our accessories, hats or buff or coffee cup or whatever you want at 40% off, uh, head over to panoramicoutdoors.com and you can find all that good stuff there. And Tristan, any final words before we bid adieu here, buddy? Well, I hope everyone's enjoying a little bit warmer weather this year if you're in the northern hemisphere or this time of year. And that uh, if you're out on the water, those lines tight and hopefully the filleting knives are sharp. And I don't know, keep a Ziploc in that bag there just in case you catch a few extra fish. Good one. We'll see you later, folks. Good luck on the water. Bye.